This is the Healthcare Analytics Podcast with myself, Caleb Loya. Working with me to do the research, editing, and everything else behind the scenes is my teammate, Tatsuya Murao. And this specific podcast episode is the final piece of a four-part series about transforming your organization through analytics. The first thing we talked about was an introduction. The second episode was talking about how you can gather valuable information. The third was about sharing stories. And then now I'm going to share with you the last piece about how you can transform your organization through analytics. And this may be the most important episode in this series because I'm going to tie a lot of things together into one place to give you an overall understanding of how analytics, how data science can help give you the advantage to lead your organization and transform it to a higher level than it is today. There are a few different concepts that I'm going to introduce throughout this episode, but one of them is called the Golden Circle by Simon Sinek. The other things that I'm going to bring to bear is Ogilvy in his book, Confessions of an Advertising Man. And I'm going to talk about how advertising and analytics work in tandem and can sometimes conflict with each other. I'm also going to talk about how you can inspire action as a leader and how you can actually use the tools of analytics to be able to be a better leader, to transform your team and your organization in a way that is capable of growing in this environment. And specifically, what we're talking about in this episode is about how you can elevate your culture through analytics and how you can transform your culture in ways that you didn't think was possible before. And that's where the first question is, what is culture? You know, everybody talks about it. Everybody thinks, okay, I think I have a handle on what culture is, but many people just use the word without really thinking about, okay, what is culture? And so I'm going to start with giving a definition of culture that may or may not fit your definition of culture, but at least it's a starting point to get this conversation moving in the right direction. And this definition comes from a friend that I've had for the past five, 10 years who has consulted many different business leaders in the Midwest and the Kansas City area. And the definition he gives, which I'm going to grab on to, is that culture is shared beliefs, values, and practices. In other words, culture is what everybody in a specific group believe about something, the values that they have or the direction that they're going and the practices of how they do things on a day-to-day basis. Having this preliminary definition will help us understand what we're trying to do and what we're trying to change. If you look online and want a various number of different definitions of culture, you're going to see that online. So for example, when I searched for what is culture, many of the things that it referenced was art, but art is just an output of culture. It's not really the culture itself. Culture is the shared beliefs, practices, and values that a group has. And from those beliefs, 
those values and those practices come good art. The things that come from it are the results of that culture. One of the things when reading David Ogilvy was that he talked about how early on in his career as an advertising executive, he really didn't put a lot of weight into company or organizational culture. He really didn't acknowledge it as something that needed to be addressed. As we have been able to progress in business for the past century, we've begun to understand what culture means and have begun to articulate how we can change culture in a way that affects our group, our, our company, and our, our industry. I'm speaking in business terms here about culture, which is really, really weird because we're talking about a specific niche of culture, meaning company culture or team culture or something like that. But you know that these ideas can be used throughout your entire life because culture is not something that just sits in a box, but you can have groups that can bridge, let's say, work and your hobbies, or it can bridge your everyday life within your family and your friend group, etc. And a good example of how culture does not just sit in one specific box is uh, in the Midwest and specifically in Kansas City, in Louisville, Kentucky, in all of these smaller towns in Arkansas, March Madness was the thing and it still is the thing to where everybody will put together a bracket and they will then sometimes put money down on the final four and the college that will win the NCAA tournament. If you don't know what March Madness is, it's essentially one of the biggest tournaments in the United States for college basketball. And all these college teams get together and there's this huge bracket and tournament that decides who is the best basketball team in the United States. And that basketball team gets all the accolades, their coach gets a raise, et cetera, et cetera. But for those of us who don't necessarily watch the NBA or professional basketball, we like to watch college basketball because there's a lot of soul in it. You can track specific players and you can actually relate to them at a level you couldn't if it was professional basketball, for example. And so anyway, all of these individuals will put together brackets, but to me, it's no surprise that the biggest place where people form brackets is in companies or in specific friend groups. And so you can be part of a NCAA bracket that has part of your friend group in it, some people from your company, some people from your immediate team within your company, and then other people outside. And so that culture of following March Madness is not only within, let's say, your friend group who likes in, and enjoys sports, but also part of your company, part of, of everything else. And so culture doesn't necessarily stay where you want it to be. But I would say that there is certainly a culture for those who watch March Madness because there are shared beliefs, values and practices that are not necessarily common outside of that. And people go to great extents to make sure that they are participating in that culture. So, for example, 
I had a boss who what they would do is they would put down 50 to $100 into a bracket and they would score everybody's bracket over time. And they would decide who has the best bracket for that specific March Madness tournament. And so my boss, he decided that the best way to do this was to build a spreadsheet. Being in finance, you know, that's how you do things is you're going to build a spreadsheet that automatically decides who wins what and uh, who gets how many points. And so I don't know how many hours he spent building the spreadsheet, but that spreadsheet has lived on for, let's say, five to seven, maybe 10 years. And people have used that same spreadsheet for their March Madness tournament. And this is something that is very interesting because if people are really interested in something like basketball tournament, for example, then people will go to great extents to make sure that they are included, that they can contribute and that they can further the goals of just having fun and whatever else is involved with that specific subculture. If you haven't watched the clip from Simon Sinek called How Great Leaders Inspire Action, you should go do that right after you listen to this episode. If you have, then you already know what I'm talking about. And to give you a little bit of a, of a refresher, Simon Sinek talks about what he calls the golden circle. So imagine a circle with two interlying circles. The outside of the circle is the what? The second layer in is the how and the center layer is the why. What he's trying to explain in that specific video is that everything comes down to the why. Everything comes down to your shared beliefs within your company, within your culture, within your group. Those shared beliefs is what makes you and your team work the way it does. It's what explains the things that you do and helps you communicate why you are doing the things you are doing and the difference that it can make for those those around you. And he explains that primarily most companies focus on the what what are they doing? And so he says that you can have any specific company, like for example, if you have a healthcare organization, they always focus on the what, meaning the outputs that they're focused on. So they will focus on the patient experience. They will focus on the amount of procedures done. They will focus on the data that comes through their system. They will focus on a lot of external results without really asking deeper questions like how they do it or more deeply why they do it. You see, you can ask, what do you do all day long? And this is a very common question when you go to any meeting at all is like, oh yeah, what do you do? You know, what, what, what is your preoccupation? But people don't necessarily really ask you how you do a specific thing or more deeply why you do what you do. And that's something that is very, very difficult to articulate, right? It's, it's like, well, why in the world do you wake up the time that you do? Why is your schedule set up the way it is? Why do you have the friends that you have? All of these things are very, very difficult to articulate. And in the same with me, it's, it's like, well, why in the world do I enjoy this podcast? Why do I enjoy sharing knowledge? Is it because there's something deeper going on there? And I would like to say, yes, there is. One of the values that I have is that I value teaching others about ideas and topics that are very, very difficult to grasp. 
But if you are interested in the ideas that I'm explaining here about getting to the why of what you do and how you do it, then I would recommend reading Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. It goes into much more detail about the ability to change the reasons that you have for doing something. And it deeply goes down to values. And that's where it ties in with culture is because what Simon Sinek is saying is that through having shared beliefs, shared values and practices, then you can transform the why. Once you transform the why of what you do, then you can change also how you do something and what you do. He gives a great example in that specific TED talk about Apple and Apple computers. Apple in the early 2000s was just a computer company. They made computers. But one of the things that Steve Jobs decided is that he wanted to explain and he wanted to drive home that they're just not a computer company or a software company. What they were was a technology company and they believed a specific set of beliefs that people could grab onto. And so if you look at any advertising from Apple, it would be very, very difficult to tell that Apple computers was about building computers. It was more about being on the edge, being creative, being able to build the things you want to build, being able to think outside the box. Those kinds of things is what Apple stood for in the past. Now, today in 2022, I don't know if Apple still stands for that today. Like, yes, they produce a great product. And yes, I do use their software. But I think of them more like you think about buying a, a refrigerator, a really, really nice refrigerator. You know, it's nice. It does what you need it to do. But there's no value behind it necessarily. And and many companies go through these cycles, depending on who's in charge or who is leading a specific company or group about the values that they want to drive home and how people are attracted to those specific values. If you have specific values and beliefs that people can gravitate towards, then it helps individuals look for a higher standard. And Steve Jobs, I feel like was one of the epitomes of that higher standard where you could think, oh yeah, that man in that company, Apple in the early 2000s, they were driving to something, man, and they were going in, in a direction. And it's quite incredible what Steve Jobs could do. He took a company that was on the borderline of bankruptcy and transformed it into the one of the largest and most valued companies in the world. Now, today, the market cap of Apple is one of the largest market caps in the world. It is rivaled to many other companies and I believe at one point touched the trillion dollar mark as far as valuations. But it takes good leadership in order to be able to identify the shared beliefs, the shared values, and the shared practices that will drive your why, the, the why of why your company is doing what it's doing. Once you have identified that why, then you can start to decide, okay, because of what we believe and because of our shared uh, practices and values, then how can we do and how can we live out these things in our normal everyday life or within our team, etc.? And then how we do them can transform into what we do. 
Once you start with the middle, then you can also go out to the outside. So if Y is at the core center of your team, then your how and your what can be based on the why. Now, leading up to this point in this episode, I really haven't talked much about analytics or numbers. And why is that the case? Why is it that I haven't really talked about analytics? And the reason why is because analytics typically sits in the how or the what of what you do. Many people don't think about analytics as driving the core why of what you do or the reason of doing the things that you're doing or the reason for having a team or having an organization. The reason why typically analytics doesn't fall into the why or the shared values is because when somebody comes up with an idea, they don't necessarily ask about the numbers behind it. And so what this leads to is somebody usually having a core response or a core reaction that they want to go in a specific direction. They can't really articulate why they want to go in that direction, but there's some shared beliefs and shared values that attract a team together or attract a company and hold that company or that organization together. But often many people won't ask the questions of how do specific numbers bring to bear on what we believe? Does specific pieces of information have a bearing on what we believe? I think it should. I think that understanding what's going on in the world around us should be able to be brought into the reason we do things. And a great example of this is... Oh, it could be anything uh, on a daily basis. But I'll give you one from my experience. One is inflation, right? Everybody looks at inflation, the the prices of things that go up over time. Me being from Central America, I'm very in tune to inflation because I know that when inflation is really, really hot, then people start to do some really, really weird things. So for example, in Costa Rica, I know that when people wanted to do a project, like let's say they wanted to build a house, what they would do is they would gather a little bit of money to build, like let's say a wall and build that wall so that the next week they won't lose any money to inflation. That that wall or that concrete structure that they were building held inflation better than their money did. And so people would undergo these projects that would last two, three, four years of working on a house that wasn't fully completed. But in a way, that house was their savings because it held better value than the money over a given number of years. So if I look at inflation and the inflation numbers and I say, okay, well, inflation is this, how does it affect what I do? Then I can start to react to that specific number. But my why behind that specific number or understanding that is that I want to be financially responsible. And so if I say, hey, I want to be a kind of person that's financially responsible, then the kind of person that will be financially responsible is the one that looks at specific metrics and uses those specific metrics in order to be able to act in a more responsible way in the world around me. And this doesn't have to only apply to my personal experiences or my personal ways of doing things. It can also relate to being a leader. So for example, if I know that 
let's say the unemployment rate is really, really high and specific people are looking for work, then I can say as a business leader, hey, there is staff available out there in the world that may be able to help us grow as an organization. If that's the case, then I can look at specific numbers and say, hey, well, the reason why we're doing this thing called analytics is because we want to help the most people as we can. If there is an available talent pool to help us reach these goals, then let's look at these specific talent pools in order for us to grow as an organization and to help others within our industry or within our area of expertise. Now that you understand that analytics can be tied into the reasons why you do things, then it's easy to use analytics in a way that helps inform you and helps you communicate and transform your organization. If you use analytics to help guide your shared beliefs, values, and practices, then what you can do is you can start to transform your organization by elevating the conversation. So if you have a deep understanding of how analytics can help you find a new target market to serve your customers and your clients better, if you can use analytics in the best way possible, then you can start to be able to offer things that won't be able to be offered. And going back to Steve Jobs, I'm sure that somewhere Steve Jobs said, hey, there's this huge market for something beyond computers. We should develop the iPad. If we develop the iPad, then we believe that there's going to be a huge market for these iPads. And likewise for the iPhone or the smartphone. The iPhone, when it came out, I remember this distinctly because I was driving to school one day and I heard on NPR about this new iPhone and how people were lining up for blocks and blocks to just get their hands on this iPhone. And I thought, what in the world? Why are these folks in New York and California just standing in line for this iPhone? Like phones are not that big of a deal. Well, little did I know that that day in 2007 would transform technology for forever. But Steve Jobs had to be able to rely on specific numbers in order to say, okay, this is how much we produce. This is how much of a margin we'll make. This is how much we should tell our shareholders that we'll make once we introduce the iPhone into the market. And so you can see that you can tie in your story of what you're doing and why you're doing it with analytics in a very concise and seamless way. And Steve Jobs could give the best of presentations and tell the best of stories. He could actually explain why his company and why specific teams and departments within their company were pursuing the things that they were. And people were behind him, man. Like, I, it's very, very hard to articulate why people backed him the way that he did, but it was incredible for the time that he was there. And as a result of Steve Jobs, every single product launch today, every single pitch presentation for a startup, any new technology that comes out is fundamentally modeling Steve Jobs when they try to present it. I'll give you the format. The format is really simply this. You have a small audience or a medium-sized audience that is there in, in, the, in the stage. You'll have this founder that comes up and there is nothing on the stage except that founder and a presentation. 
And that founder will slowly go through the specific slides or the specific uh, pieces of information he needs. And at the end, there will be this new debut of, of this technology that's coming out and everybody will cheer and applaud. And then the founder or the person who's giving that presentation will then go into the details about that specific technology or that specific product. And Steve Jobs, I'm sure, got it from somebody else. But many people present and use that same format without really trying to describe the why of what they do. But Steve Jobs was a master of being able to tie in stories with numbers, with technology, and with analytics. You couldn't tell that from the surface, but man, that guy was was a master. And there are very, very few people today that can rival his mastery. The only person that can really articulate and or advance technologies as well as Steve Jobs, I would say is Elon Musk. Elon Musk doesn't necessarily tell stories like Steve Jobs does, but he certainly can undergo a conversation and he is certainly numbers driven uh, with an engineering background and the background that he has. I can tell you that he is probably one of the most analytics or data minded individuals that is out there. But what's the alternative? What is the alternative of using analytics to drive your values and drive your shared beliefs and the ways you do things? Well, the competition to analytics, I'll tell you, is your marketing department. And nobody really thinks about it, but I'm going to explain why marketing is in direct competition when it comes to forming the culture within your organization. The reason why is because marketing people can tell stories. They're fundamentally storytellers who can explain things in really, really clear ways. They don't necessarily use numbers to drive their opinions, but marketing departments are really, really good at articulating the direction and the culture of where a team or company should go. And this necessarily isn't a bad thing. You can harness marketing organizations to your advantage to be able to entice customers, to be able to get new clients, and to be able to get new business and expand. But one of the things that marketing doesn't necessarily have is it doesn't necessarily have the skill set for being able to dive deep into numbers and quite honestly, for the ability to be truthful. Truthfulness is not necessarily the goal of marketing. The goal of marketing is to get you to do something fundamentally. And the ways that the best marketing departments do that is by explaining shared values, beliefs, and practices. And that's where David Ogilvy comes into the picture, is that I read and have on my bookshelf and read as much as I can, A Confessions of an Advertising Man. And that book is gold, I'll tell you. It was written in 1963, but many of the applications and many of the insights he has is timeless. And one of the reasons why is because he knew how people worked. He knew how people operated behind the surface. And because of that, he could communicate in ways that other people could not. And people hired him and his company to do work that today is modeled on 40 or 50 years later. And many people who have read Ogilvy can 
value what he has to say. But many people read that and say, oh, it's outdated. It's like the old advertising executive man who is from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It doesn't necessarily apply today in our cutting edge technologies like, let's say, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, all of these. Many people look at these platforms and say, well, Ogilvy was a man who was very talented, but he only worked with newspaper and and books fundamentally. And his ideas don't necessarily apply today. But what I would say is that it's worth reading. And the reason why is because David Ogilvy knew exactly how people worked. He could identify the why behind an individual or an organization really, really quickly. And because he could understand that why, he could then articulate an advertising campaign that met that reason for being. Or he could say, well, I understand your shared beliefs, your shared values, and your shared practices. And so this is the advertising campaign that will reach the people who have the same beliefs, practices, and values. Today, we don't necessarily think about it that way, but advertising is, I will say, in direct competition or can compete with analytics because they're both trying to explain how the world works. And they're both trying to help individuals form the ways that people and organizations act and do the things that they do. And there doesn't necessarily have to be a conflict between analytics departments and marketing departments but you get this kind of conflict in very, very interesting ways. And so I'll give you a, a few ways that analytics and your marketing departments can cross paths in ways that can be beneficial or cannot. One of them is where you have a business leader who then gets an email from an a marketing department saying, hey, we have these specific clients that we're reaching to and have this specific campaign that is targeted towards, let's say, millennial females or millennial women. So if you have that market, then they say, okay, well, we need everybody, all the leaders in our organization to essentially fit into this specific advertising campaign. And so everybody needs to act in accordance to what the marketing department is doing and also be able to promote the products and the services that we're doing. And so any quarterly review will typically involve a marketing department saying, well, for this next quarter, these are the advertising campaigns that we're going to undergo. And even in healthcare, when it comes to any product launch or any specific technology, there is typically a marketing department behind it. And a marketing department will say, okay, we're trying to reach doctors or healthcare professionals in these specific areas. And this is how we're going to do so. And so if you have a marketing department that is driving sales, for example, then people say, okay, this marketing department knows exactly what they're doing. So we're going to follow the marketing department's lead and we're going to promote these specific products. We're going to tailor our entire organization towards these products and services. But there in the background is analytics that is saying, well, Given the entire organization or given these specific products, this is what we're seeing within this organization. These are the specific product lines that are actually performing really well. These are the ones that historically are falling off a cliff. These are the specific services that are doing better than expected. 
And so you can have in one given quarterly review, a marketing department that says, we are going to advertise in this specific way for the future. And then you will have a analytics team that comes in, let's say a couple hours afterwards to an executive and say, well, these are the specific products that have done well this quarter. This is the trend. These are the specific departments that need to improve, etc. But if analytics and marketing don't necessarily line up, then you're going to get a conflict of ideas and you're going to get a conflict of the direction that an organization should go. Within this conflict, you can have leaders who make illogical decisions for any given number of reasons. And a prime example of this is the executive at Coca-Cola deciding that their old Coke brand wasn't good enough and that they would take off the shelves their traditional Coca-Cola and introduce a new Coke in its place. And the marketing department there probably said, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. We're going to be able to renovate the entire company. We're going to be able to get new sales. We're going to outbeat our competition by introducing this new Coke and discontinuing the old product line that they have had for over 50 years. Now, the marketing department probably thought it was a great idea, but I bet you that somebody within finance or somebody within their analytics team was saying, well, I don't think this is going to work. Like, listen, like our, our profit margins are good. How do we know that this new product is going to do better or at least as well as our old product line? But unfortunately, the executive team went forward with the marketing plan without consulting those within finance or analytics who would have given them another alternate opinion about the direction that they should go. And it's a fine balance, right? Because you don't necessarily want to lead your organization with accountants and finance people because you want to have creativity within your organization, at least to some extent, but you don't want to be led illogically down a path that doesn't make sense. And so that's why these two are held in tension is the creative people who are typically in, in marketing or advertising and the hard number folks or the logical people who are usually in engineering, accounting, or finance. And so as a leader, if you can pull from both of these sources of information and sources of knowledge, you can start to guide your team and your organization down a path that is better than any of the two separately. So you can start to form a path that is using the marketing department and the creative efforts of those within your organization, as well as those who are more logically oriented. Now, there are many other examples that you can find about executives, leaders, teammates who do illogical things for any given number of reasons. And I can go on and on about why people do the things they do in leadership. And if you want to know more about specific biases that individuals have, I recommend Charlie Munger because Charlie Munger has so many examples about how executives, leaders, and people made poor decisions that were skewed by irrational thinking. If you have any other questions about this podcast or any others, feel free to reach out to us at podcast at arcosanalytics.com. Likewise, you can also find us on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash company slash arcosanalytics. Thanks for listening and I will talk to you later.